As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine and I'm joined now by Alex Stewart. Yes, you are, Joe. Yes, you are. Ah, guten Tag, Herr Seb stafford Hello, Joe. Yes, okay. Hello. And uh, uh, today we'll be talking about uh, the Champions League mostly. We've got some Tuchel on the menu, a bit of Chelsea Atletico Madrid. Uh, we've also got some Guardiola bites as a side uh, for uh, their defeat over to not to the way they beat Borussia Mönchengladbach. That's right. Uh, we've got some the breadsticks of Madrid to uh, discuss and also... Uh, Premier League relegation as a put. Uh, tiramisu, yes please. Uh, and other than that, we also head over to the continent for a couple of uh, a couple of updates uh, on other things and have a great chat. There's also Joe's uh, player quotes and facts database. It's a jam-packed uh, uh, menu today. Every meal has jam in it. And uh, I hope you uh, enjoy listening to it. So thanks, thanks a bunch for downloading. Let me tell you also, while you're here... But if you'd like to, you can get even more jam than I've mentioned by going to theathletic.com forward slash TIFO and signing up to a special deal of just £1 per week to read everything that The Athletic has to offer. And I tell you what, gang, that's a lot of jam, okay? And it's real high-quality jam, not the kind of jam that you would buy for 99p at a supermarket, but the kind that if you were to visit the countryside and you were to see... Uh, you know, a sort of uh, a friendly-looking uh, middle-aged couple stood at the side of the road with a small trestle table and homemade jam full of almost full bits of fruit in it, yeah, but no pip. That's the kind of jam I'm talking about. So if you visit theathletic.com forward slash TIFO, you can avail yourselves of that jam for just £1 per week. Just to clarify, it's not jam, it's high-quality football journalism. And uh, it always will be. So you won't actually get any jam, but the metaphor, you understand. Um... Anyway, so there we go. Uh, I will leave you now in the warm hands and the cool embrace of Thomas Tuchel. Okay, let us begin with Chelsea 2 Ag 3. Nil Ag Nil. Atletico Madrid. Tuchel, by the way, we can talk about uh, 
Thomas Tuchel now, because Thomas Tuchel, did you know, has coached Chelsea for 13 games during which they have conceded only twice on two separate occasions. Uh, that's nine wins, four draws, uh, 15 goals, remaining undefeated. This feels starkly different to uh, Lampard's time, Seb. Is uh, this the difference of an elite coach or is it just too too soon to be such a bastard to Frank Lampard? No, I think so. Because I think the prevailing narrative around Lampard was that he had a group of players that he couldn't coach. So a group of players that sort of were unmovable, uh, particularly in defence. And obviously, as you said, 13 games later, all of a sudden people are starting to talk about Chelsea as maybe being contender for the European Cup. Little yeah. bit different. And hey, you know what? Since we're talking about uh, keeping clean sheets and defending, the improvement in some of those defenders. Cesar Azpilicueta, for instance, or Andres Christensen. Um, mm-hmm. Look how much better uh, Antonio Rudiger has been. Um, he was so great last night. He's great. He's uh, He does a lot of things really well, and not just in defence, not just without the ball. He's a good, good footballer. True. Bit of but a he smothers, house, doesn't he? He's a real of, smotherer. I'm not going to get derailed by that. He is a shithouse. He has a little bit of previous in getting opponents sent off. And he did it again last night. Well done. Sure. Sure. I also, I have to say, I really, uh, I know you're not supposed to like this stuff as a supporter of football, but when he patted the, I'm not sure, I can't remember which Atletico Madrid player it was, but the one complaining at him uh, for, for, for falling as hard as he did when uh, when the elbow was thrust at him, uh, all, all, you know, fairly softly, uh, when he patted that chap on the back of the head and just smiled in his face. Yeah. Yeah. I thought, oh man, you've got to be an asshole to do that. Like, that's um, that's a special kind of dick move, you know. At least, at least, be ashamed of yourself. Uh, but no, you know, why not? He got elbowed in the chest. It probably, it certainly was a red card action. Whether it was of of a red card uh, uh, ferocity or not, I suppose is the he, is the debating point. Yeah, he kind of makes sure the red card is given and that the incident is spotted. I suppose. That's the kind of that would be the well. As do you know what? As any other player on the pitch would do, right? I think when it comes to defenders, particularly big, tall defenders, suddenly uh, our barometer seems slightly different. And I don't know that somebody who is big and tall being elbowed in the chest is any different to anybody, uh, any adult being elbowed in the chest. Isn't that fair? I can honestly say I don't think I've ever been elbowed in the chest. I mean, not didn't no. you go to school? Yeah, but I got elbowed in the forehead and in the rear. <laughs> what? what? Well, no, playing, what? playing, playing football, but never, never in the chest. Well, that's because the that's because it was savage, wasn't it? Yeah, because he did it on purpose. <laughs> it wasn't by accident, was it? It wasn't an accident. He jabbed. He went. He knew what he was doing. Uh, I think that's the other thing. He didn't do it particularly hard. Anyway, we, goodness me, we're we're caught on a controversial decision that's very unlike the tifo football podcast can i say uh, alex i know you're a fan of uh, declan rice but for some chelsea supporters declan rice has become a sort of symbol of uh, the lampard era in a way that i think maybe a perhaps a more or more real one is ben chilwell who who hasn't really been playing very much recently um it seems like as seb was saying you know there was this group of players that lampard struggled to coach uh, and he wanted to bring Declan Rice in for 40 or 50 or 60 million pounds, depending on which rumour you hear. And then last night you watched the performance of Chelsea's midfield, and particularly Kante in that uh, defensive midfielder role, who was just just exceptional as um, as usual, as expected, I suppose. 
uh, and you start to wonder what was Lampard doing. <laughs> yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? I mean, I, there was some talk about Lampard wanting Rice in as as a centre back as well to give them more controlled passing from the back, but again. Uh, Christensen has done that reasonably well in the absence of, of Thiago Silva. He wasn't playing yesterday, but you know, the, Tuchel has solved a lot of these problems. He's given uh, Chelsea a much greater degree of defensive solidity, which can make them look a little more ponderous in attack. But this ability to hog the ball, to shift from side to side in a block, uh, the ability of, of Kovacic, Kante or Jorginho, whoever's playing in that midfield too, to kind of cover the back three, but also then get the ball forwards in transition. I, th- I think Chelsea Chelsea are much, much better in transition now than they were before, and that's both attack into defence and vice versa. And that's a lot to do with organisation. Uh, and I think if you look at, for example, the change in Rudiger, I mean, Ru- you know, Rudiger was not great under Lampard. There was some discussion on Twitter yesterday about you know, the fact that he hadn't necessarily been great under Sarri or, or Conte either. But what Tuchel has done is identified what he's good at and what he's not so good at. And playing as a wider centre-back in a three, where he can carry the ball forwards, where he can use his pace, but where he's got sufficient cover by being in a back three, clearly plays to his strengths and gets the best out of him. And I think what Tuchel's done is he's very quickly identified a way of making Chelsea much, much more uh, difficult to get around in transition building from that base principle of let's not concede goals, let's keep things tight. And then he's, you know, starting to get more of a tune out of his attacking players. Yeah, because it's, it's, it's hardly a sort of defensive lineup that you would expect to have gone, you know, this many minutes without conceding a goal. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, there's been Zuma and Christensen are two players who have had potential for a long time, but, you know, remain within Chelsea's uh, team or certainly within the wider perspective to be still young players with some with some potential, right? However young they actually are. Uh, you've talked about Rudiger there. Also, Aspilicueta, uh, a natural right back, has been playing on the right hand side of this three as well. And even uh, Christensen was, as you say, unavailable last night and Zuma stepped in his place. There must be more going on within the team, right? Because last night, it just seemed last night that Atletico Madrid were never going to score. And when you read the players' names individually, you sort of wonder how this has happened. Uh, but system, systematically, I guess, it, I guess it's working. I, th- I think that's absolutely right. And it does, I, in my opinion, it starts with that midfield pivot and its ability to shift across... Uh, compact the space and and keep that back line protected. I mean, I thought the only time that Chelsea looked at all vulnerable yesterday was when they were trying to play out from the back. Um, They did manage to get that kind of uh, ball out to the left and then a progressive pass into midfield that allowed them to then hoover up the second ball. That, That was kind of their out and it worked quite well. Mendy is not massively convincing with the ball at his feet. Um, and Chelsea did look to invite a bit of pressure. But again, the fact that they continue to do that, despite the fact they nearly got caught out a couple of times, does indicate a real confidence in that unit, that that these players know where each other are going to be. They have confidence in the players alongside them. The rotation, like you say, bringing Zuma into the centre, who's a very good aerial presence, not necessarily a great kind of ball-playing defender. It's working very well, and it's very, very difficult, even if you're being relatively kind it's very difficult to see that this isn't just what happens when you have a much better coach in charge 
Well, towards the other end of the pitch now, uh, I want to ask you about Kai Havertz, who's started the last four games, um, three of which he played a, a, a sort of, well, in the centre-forward role, really. Um, last night against Atletico Madrid, he played in that uh, left-sided, uh, inside-forward role, a bit like the Mason Mount Mason Mount area. Mason Mount, of course, unavailable for, for last night's game too. Um, Tuchel has said of him in a, in a press conference, I think before the Leeds game, that uh, in my opinion, his best position is between the nine and the ten, uh, and have the freedom to drop and move fluid between the two positions. So he's he's also he has only scored once so far this year, which was under Lampard, but he played an important role in the first goal against Atletico last night. And Alex, at the time, you mentioned that uh, it looked to you like Havertz at, at Leverkusen. Do do you think uh, that his future is in that position too? I mean, Germany certainly need a striker, so it could be good. Yeah, they do. I, I think I think the problem that Chelsea have at the moment is that the constituent parts of that attack are all very good, but they're not quite gelling yet. Um, and I think Havertz, Havertz definitely is what Tuchel says he is. He's very, very good at dropping off. He's very good at linking play. Um, with that first goal last night, he took the ball under pressure and used his strength and his speed to push forwards before releasing a good pass. And that's the kind of stuff when it's broken play and he can charge forwards. That's what he's really good at, late arriving in the box, that kind of stuff. Unfortunately, I think what that requires is to have wide players, and this is one of the things that he did well at Leverkusen when playing in that role, was he had players like Moussa Diaby who were able to cut inside ahead of him. Um, And that's with with Chelsea using wing-backs, and and if Ziyech is in the right-hand slot, that's not going to happen so much. So where he's drifting off and and playing sometimes behind Werner, but sometimes alongside him, and Chelsea do this thing where they have two attacking midfielders and then a striker, but actually one of the attacking midfielders tends to kind of tuck inside and form like a a one-two shape, and the other one pushes up, and and usually Mason Mount's doing that from the left, but here Ziyech was doing it from the right. I think that works really well, because then Havertz can, can play between the lines... He can get ahead of the other striker. He can drop really deep and carry the ball. But you've still got that focal point in, <clears throat> excuse me, in in Timo Werner last night, which gives Chelsea something to aim for. Um, so I don't know if he'll work as a false nine on his own unless Chelsea start getting wide attacking players that are able to cut inside. And obviously that's slightly harder with the wing back thing anyway, because then that leaves a bit of a gap in the sort of ten position. So there's still stuff to work out, but but it looks again like Tuchel's priority was to stop them conceding and to get them much, much better in transition. And now he's working out exactly how to fine tune that attack and how to get the best out of everyone. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, Seb, Rhys James, I thought he was great against Atletico Madrid. Uh, I thought he was really industrious. Uh, I liked how he cut inside quite a lot too. He seems to, you know, the ball seems to stick to him, or at least he always seems to find a way through a congested area, even if it looks a little bit haphazard at times. Uh, if he's only 21 years old too, what, what does his future look like? Well, I, I expect him to be the long-term challenger to Trent Alexander-Arnold for England's right-back spot. I think in this instance, he might be a beneficiary of some of the things happening inside him, both in, in the centre of defence, but also in midfield. Because I thought that... Um, <laughs> when you said inside him, I thought you meant... Well, like just like, emotionally. Uh, in his body, emotionally, <laughs> or yeah, in his mind. 
Everything's reached nice personal equilibrium, you know. We're all beneficiaries of the things happening inside hey, of us, aren't we? For certain. Even but if you dark. if you look at the other things going on at Chelsea, so obviously we've we've talked about central defence, but um, I thought one of the standouts on Wednesday night was N'Golo Kante's performance. Um, these things help a fullback because it takes away their responsibilities. It helps. It takes away like some of the dysfunction happening in their peripheral vision. Um, and we know that Reese James is a good footballer. We know he's uh, like we we know about his, his quality delivering from wide. I liken him to and most fullbacks. To be fair, we're all wingbacks. I liken them to uh, a, you know, the the castle on the chessboard. Like, uh-huh. if you give the them a kind of a fairly, yeah, rook castle. Um, if you give them a fairly narrow place to operate within, like, they could be at the most effective. If you start saying to them, right, well, you're also going to have to start covering for this underperforming centre-half inside you and the big model of a midfield that we kind of haven't decided on and we're going to try this player here and that one up here and... You start complicating it. You start taking away from things like good delivery and uh, recovery, and you know ability to come inside. I think, like, sure, that's the bishop's job. <laughs> <laughs> I've been derailed. I've been hijacked. Well, also um, with, with this point, and I, I agree with what you're saying, Seb. <laughs> the, the queen, perhaps, in this instance, oh, God. is yeah. uh, is Aspilicueta because Aspilicueta played on the right side of a of a back three under Conte, so he's used to it. But obviously he came to the club and has also regularly played as a right back. Well, so it, it yeah, gives I mean, Rhys James a lot of uh, security knowing that the centre-back who's playing inside and behind him is able to cover across with complete freedom of movement, much like a player on the chessboard who can go in any direction for any kind of length. No, I think you've broken the analogy here. Oh, with, with, there is a good point in there, though, with Aspilicueta, <laughs> because I think that, yes, he, he played for a long time as a fullback, but he also played for a long time as a left back as well. And I think it's always beneficial when you put a player like that into your back line, you kind of, you're, you're importing wisdom, if that makes sense. Like, obviously, natural experience, he's been a very successful player for a long time. But he understands the obligations of a fullback on both sides. He understands what he would want from a centre-half in those situations. And I, I think those things are very, very difficult to measure, but they're definitely a benefit to a fullback, and especially a young one. So who's the king? I don't... I mean, I, <laughs> I'm not sure, but, uh, I, you know, who's the pawn that uh, gets to the other side? You know, that that one? <laughs> I was going to ask you one other question about Chelsea, uh, and it was... Oh, yeah, it was to say, do you know how Kante's really good at defensive midfield, yeah? Uh, And then, obviously, people want to do different things, and so sometimes that means... For example, under Sarri, you know, I've brought Jorginho, and that's where he plays, so we'll have to find a new place for Kante, or with... uh, Lampard, who he did, did to be fair to him, play Kante at the, at the DM more often, but also in that sort of right-hand side uh, shuttling position too. Isn't it fair to say, right, that when y- your best player performs best in a particular position, that either the club shouldn't hire managers that don't want to play him there, or they should sell him and get a different one? Because I think Kante is their best player. Yeah, I, I think that's probably fair. But then I, I don't think that anybody at Chelsea would fight you in saying that the Sarri era was just a big mistake from everyone involved and involved a lot no 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 sure I guess the point that's not really the I'm not going surprise it was wrong are you saying what I'm saying is that Kante is Chelsea's best player I think 
and I think is still undervalued because of the position that he plays and because the contribution that he makes is sometimes difficult to see or just naturally difficult as a result of, of his role, the perception is always going to be that, you know, best, the best player for a team is, is usually, uh, a, a, you know, an attacking player and that that's the most important. And that, But I mean, I look at this this Chelsea team and it's stacked with, with fantastically talented people, but I think Kante is the best player by far. Can I venture a contrarian perspective on this? I was hoping that you would. Lovely. So when we talk about Angelo Kante and specifically in reference to Maurizio Sarri, everyone says, oh, you know, like he's best as a defensive midfielder and you start messing about with the position and you're going to create difficulties in your midfield. Like I've got a certain amount of sympathy for anyone who wishes to alter his position because he's superb as a defensive midfielder. But any, anybody saying that that is the limit of his contribution is obviously wrong. He's a very, very rounded player who... Um, with a little bit more shooting ability and a bit more composure in the other box, could be a brilliant number eight in a different era, perhaps. Um, in this situation, there must be an awful temptation, a huge temptation to say, I've got this player who can do this one department of the game to really, really high standard. What else can I do with him, given that we're seeing he's a big asset in counter-attacking play, look back on his uh, contributions in Leicester's title-winning season, but what can I do by moving him into different areas of the pitch? Can I create a, um, when we're attacking, can I create a lock on our, you know, um, on our kind of territorial advantage, if that makes sense? So when you're attacking the kind of the the, um, the front third of the pitch, can you prevent a, uh, can you prevent an opposition from breaking forward on you? Can you seal that bit of the pitch off? Can you use Kante to do that? Like when you have someone that's that talented, of course you're gonna, your mind's gonna wander a little bit. Does that make sense? No, I don't like it. I think uh, <laughs> I like um, I like to go. You're great at this, and you're going to do this forever. Yeah, but and that's okay, but that's so, it because it proves my point. I can, but if you if you apply the same logic to great players in history, so I don't know uh-huh. um, Thierry Henry, for instance, started yeah. life as a winger. Uh-huh. If someone at, at some point in his career doesn't think, I wonder what he could do if dot dot dot. No, see, Chris, I think he should have stayed as a winger. I think that's, I think basically that's... <laughs> hey, Leo Messi, you know, Leo Messi yeah. probably becomes, uh, you know, the greatest player in history um, regardless. But without Guardiola thinking, I wonder what happens if I offset him from the forward line a little bit and get those Real Madrid defenders chasing forward. Like, these, yeah. are, little, these are little quantum leaps that you make and they lead to great I just don't like change. change. You I don't, don't want change that anything to change. You want everything to be the same forever. Yeah, Joao Felix uh, was described by the commentary team uh, again. I keep saying last night, but of course this is probably Wednesday. Uh, well, it def- def- definitely is Wednesday. Uh, it was described by Wednesday's commentary team as looking a little bit lost during the game, which I don't think was unfair. But I was re- I, this is the first time that I've uh, these two games are the first time that I've watched Atletico Madrid all season. So this is my first uh, t- time of seeing Joao Felix this season. Um, and so I was reading about him after after the game because I, all, all I really know about him is that there was this huge, great, big, enormous um, transfer fee. Uh, and I found Sid Lowe writing about him on ESPN during the first half of the season, uh, who said at the time that he was probably the best player in, in Spain. Um, ten goals, six assists so far this season, still only 21 years old. Uh, you know, is he still on course to live up to that huge transfer fee, Seb, given that I have only watched him <laughs> twice and he wasn't fantastic either time oh yeah he's he's absolutely brilliant i mean he's uh 
I don't even think of him as a goals and assists type player. He's just he represents the fun in the game and the artistry. He's just absolutely brilliant. Last couple of games, maybe you've called him at a bad time. Like, I, well, this is this play- is why I wanted to ask because I figured, yeah. like, it's possible a lot of people will have, like, if people who people who don't watch La Liga, like myself, uh, I don't think I watched that Let's Go earlier in the Champions League. This is literally the only two times I've seen him play, and I can't remember him from the first leg. So, uh, this is this is why I ask to be reassured that there is some good in the world. So. I watched Atletico's draw with Getafe at the weekend, as you know, because I had that big moan about um, time-wasting, didn't I? I Yes, you did. I lost my mind a little bit, yeah. Well, one of the problems there was that, and I I think if I'm thinking of the right article, I think this was something that Sidlow mentioned in that piece for ESPN, which is that one of the ways in which Simeone has used Luis Suarez uh, since uh, he arrived from Barcelona is as a a kind of reference point for Yao Felix on on um, on the pitch. So, like, what are Suarez's abilities at this stage of his career? Well, he's not as quick as he was, but he still attracts a lot of defensive attention. He still um, occupies centre-backs. He creates space elsewhere for other players who can sit in pockets of space. So, Jao Felix is is obviously um, a really good example of that. And against Getafe, who were pretty stubborn defensively, that didn't really happen. And that's coincided with a, a few weeks where... I, I don't know if this is premature or unfair, but Luis Suarez has started to look a bit tired. He started to look his age. Yeah, um, yeah. And I saw someone on Twitter say, whilst last night's game was happening, shortly after Suarez was substituted, he now looks a little bit like the player that Barcelona let go. And I thought, that's pretty harsh because he's had a great season, but not unfair based on that performance. And so I think maybe um, this is a, an instance of him suffering, Jean Felix that is suffering because of his surroundings. But as a spectacle... And as someone that you can look at and imagine, God, think about where he'll be in two or three years when this piece is around him, when he's developed a proper chemistry with a, I don't know, another centre forward who is at a, you know, an equivalent stage of his own career. A guy, this guy is, is uh, he's phenomenal. Absolutely. What, phenomenal. what I want to know, though, is, is he on the Mbappe Holland level? Well, I think he'll always be treated differently because... Uh, there's a natural binary relationship between Mbappe and Holland because of the position they play. Whereas Jao Felix will always drop into a slightly different category. It'll be like saying, right. it, it, it'll be a little bit like, not that they're stylistic, stylistically similar. It'll be a little bit like the Juan Regalme conversation. Right, right, right. It will always be a kind of a slightly acquired taste, but as a footballer and as just an aesthetic, he's, he's sensational. Okay. Well, that's very exciting, isn't it? Uh, Listen, we'll be back after this uh, to chat about some of the other Champions League games. uh, And coming up is a Premier League relegation and a trip to the continent. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruits and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. Okay, we're back. And uh, now let us begin by talking about Manchester City 2, Ag 4, Ag 0-0, Borussia Mönchengladbach. Now, Manchester City, of course, into the quarterfinals fairly easily, it should be said, across two legs. Uh, Gundogan scores again. 12 goals this season, twice his previous season record, which was a couple of years ago for City, and uh, beyond that, he's only scored three at most in any other season. Alex, what is happening? Um, hmm. Consistent run of games probably helps. Um, I mean, he's not he's not had the easiest uh, time at City with injuries and absences and so on. Um, but also, I think this ability that City have found of late in the absence of a, a genuine striker to encourage these late runs into the box from everybody, really. You know, City mm. are playing with such a superb fluidity. Um, you know, I think Cancelo is probably the, the most uh, extreme example of this ability to get players into weird positions doing strange things. But Gundogan clearly has been tasked with with not only sitting back and, and shoring up the midfield and spraying passes around, but being the guy who sneaks in at the end of moves without yeah. anybody noticing him. Because um, it's the ones he doesn't score as well, right? It's not like uh, 12 goals, fantastic return for a player in his position. But I frequently notice him when I watch City uh, uh, in, in in sort of chance creation areas. Oh, completely. Uh, like he, he misses more than he scores still, I think. Uh, he, he could have 20. Yeah, and, and he does, you know, it's that... He's not like Lampard at Chelsea in that season when, when Lampard... I, did Lampard actually score 20 goals? I think it possibly yeah, yeah, yeah. was that many. Yeah. Um, but it's that same sort of thing of having a, a player who... Uh, Lampard, I feel, was maybe more dynamic in it uh, um, and arrived in the box with a bit more pace. Gundogan has a, a like a subtlety to him. Um, he just... I don't want to say magically appears because that's a really stupid thing to say, but he he's there and nobody has noticed his arrival. And and maybe yeah. it is because he's a less physically imposing presence. Um, and also because City can create this whirlwind of movement, and, and particularly with players like uh, Bernardo Silva in that midfield line as well. Opposition defenders know that the quick runs and the quick interplay are coming from people like Bernardo Silva or, or Riyad Mahrez cutting him from the right-hand side or De Bruyne dropping off. And Gundogan benefits almost from being the guy that nobody really notices because he's sure. not as jazzy as the other ones. Um, yeah. And yeah, his his intelligence, his positional intelligence is what allows him to get into those spots. Um, and like you say, he, he could have more goals if he was maybe a bit better at finishing. De Bruyne in the false nine again too. I suppose that could also be partly related to Gundogan's recent performances and the desire to get silver in the 11, Alex. Yeah, I think that's right, and and again, it goes back to this um this flexibility. Guardiola is is adept and has consistently been adept at, at solving individual problems when they pop up, and and thinking about the game very much as you know an ability to maximize what his side does. Um, I think he's he's trying to figure out, or has I think he's succeeded in this um, 
how to play without Aguero for a large, large part of the season. And that has been to create this this constant movement between the various midfield positions. And we say that De Bruyne is a false nine and when City line up out of possession, that is nominally his position in, in the kind of first line of defence. But ultimately, all of these City players can pop up anywhere on the pitch and do pretty much whatever they want. Um, and, and I say that not like it's chaotic. You know, there is structure in players and moving in relation to other players. But it... it <laughs> De Bruyne as a false nine is slightly misleading because it, it is a lot to do with the out-of-possession shape. Um, the rest of the time, there's real freedom. Players are popping up in the centre-forward position, dropping off. Um, and this, yeah, like you say, this is part of why Gundogan has excelled this season. Um, but it's also testament to the fact that Guardiola's really nailed it. Yeah, OK. Well, well done. Back pats all round. What a surprise. Uh, Real Madrid, three, aggregate four... Uh, aggregate one, uh, one Atalanta. Comfortable victory, another comfortable victory. Tuesday night, a night of comfortable victories uh, for Madrid, uh, who had clearly kicked it up a notch, Seb, from their last rather stolid performance in the in the first leg. Yeah, goodness, that was an awful game over in Italy, Ugh. wasn't it? Absolutely <laughs> dreadful. <laughs> uh, it was. Uh, I remember the, the WhatsApp chat from that evening, and it wasn't a pretty sight. This was. Um, Actually, you know what? For an hour, I really didn't enjoy this. So much so that I ended up um, just getting to bed with my iPad. And then um, when Atlanta scored their weird free kick, I woke up my wife by kind of laughing about it. And funny enough, my um, because we're now in Germany, my wife has, has kind of reverted back to instinctively talking German. So she woke up in a start and just started talking loud German at me. And I've only been learning for about three weeks. And that's quite intimidating uh-uh. when you're kind of... How many words did you pick up? prick shut the fuck up did you get that it was more just the tone (laughs) (laughs) what they actually meant (laughs) the meaning behind them Uh, was it schließen dein mund or something it was probably something of that nature yeah uh Mm -hmm. wasn't happy Mm -hmm. she wasn't happy um what i was gonna say though is have you have you two seen the free kick yeah so it's fun. Well, let, let, me descri- let me describe okay, it. Okay, people, you go first. But before, yeah. you, before you get ahead of yourself, Seb, yeah? Okay. Uh, I've called it the double wall. Does that seem that seems fair? Double, double wall. So Atalanta's got this, came from a, a free kick scored by uh, Muriel, uh, during which they formed a three-man wall just ahead of the ball, facing the goal. And when the whistle blew, the blue wall of Atalanta charged at Real Madrid's wall and the draft excluder. And it kind of worked, I guess, because the goal was scored. See, I, I don't agree, and this is why I laughed. This is uh, why Jalen had a broken night's sleep. Because if you were if you were Thibaut Courtois in that situation, are you distracted by anything that happens there, or are you just thinking, okay? Because <laughs> your view of the ball isn't obstructed at any point. No. You just wait until the free kick is actually taken, and that's a really good free kick anyway. And it goes in the but top the corner. defender's view of the ball is is obstructed, the, right? The, the, the but, defenders just jump straight up anyway. They can't, they can't, yeah, because they can't like angle their body to block because they don't know where the ball is. I think, I think that's a reach. I, I think, it, I think there was a good intention behind the free kicks design. I just feel that it wasn't properly timed or because the tie was out of reach, everyone sort of had a kind of our fuck it attitude towards it. Nah. It was, I think it was a great free kick that people will wrongly conflate with what Atalanta did by running it 
the Real Madrid wall, but I think it would have been a goal. It was fun. Even it was fun. But it, you guys are yeah, so depressing. Well, come on, come on. It was no, it I, no, 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 I, no, no. I love a good free Me kick too. when it works, but that wasn't the point. No, I disagree. I think it did work. I think defenders in walls can see uh, the shape of the play. I think I think micro adjustments and movements can be made as a result of body language. I think if uh, I, I think also just having something confusing happening in front of you can make a big difference to your ability to impact the situation. Uh, and I think it would be impossible for either of you to say for sure that it didn't make any difference, uh, that it didn't impact the goal. Because uh, I think if it did make a difference, then, as you said, it's kind of marginal. It's a, it's a small difference, right? But sometimes that's, that's all that's needed. Is somebody going to ring your doorbell every single time we record a podcast, Alex? <laughs> I was just if this, that. Jesus Christ. Do you know what it is? It's probably the postman who's come and brought you a letter from your grandparents who are telling you to not be do, so do cynical about Do you want me to go and the... get it? Or... I will, yes, I will go fight our corner. Right, I want to know what it is. Go and get okay. it. No, there's no need. There's no corner to fight. No, what I I'm telling you is that you couldn't possibly say for sure that it didn't have any impact. So I reject that, right? And we will leave this in the area uh, where it could have, or it maybe, maybe it didn't, maybe it did, but who, who could possibly ever say? Not you, not you, sir, not you. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruits and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. Are you saying they couldn't have got to it? I'm saying they might have done, but I don't think whether they were, whether they would or wouldn't was, in that case, impacted by anything that the Atlanta players did around the ball before it was... But, uh, but, but, uh, but, are we still talking about the free kick? You're just saying right. We are. I told you I was going to fight our corner. You can't. You can't know that. Like unless you, unless you're saying that the defenders couldn't categorically get to that ball, which is not true, right? I'm I'm not saying that. You cannot say that it didn't have any impact. No, no. Isn't that the point, though? No one can know either way for sure. But because it was that's my point. That's what I'm saying. Weird. That's why I'm saying you're both wrong for saying that it didn't have any impacts because you can't know for sure. No, what I'm saying is that people will view it as having an outsized impact because of the result. I'm saying it had no impact. I'm being categoric about it. Okay. <laughs> you so can't we basically, you we've can't. got three separate I positions. Can. I can. I can. No, you can't. I'm not you sure can. you can. That's, I don't, I don't that's think ridiculous. you can, it's, it's like... It's, I don't think it's you can like be categorical about anything. It's like wrapping up a present in wrapping paper, but then not using any sellotape. You give it to someone and it all falls off. It has no, it's decoration, it has no purpose, there's no, it doesn't create any delays or distractions, it's just, the gift is the same, the box is the same. Is wrapping paper and supposed case, to be a distraction? That was a break, this is a podcast, it's the Premier League, uh, and I thought it'd be a good time to talk about this, uh, because, reason number one, I'm not here next week, reason number two, it's an international break, the weekend after this one, so we've got a bit of a... Bit of a gap before the uh, Premier League resolves itself. Ten games left uh, for most teams. And what I've done here is I've taken 
the future fixtures and collated them for Fulham, Newcastle and Brighton. I did think about including uh, Burnley, but they look a little far off. I did think about including West Brom and then I saw how many points they actually have and decided, no, no, that would be foolish. Uh, they are clearly relegated already. So I'm going to begin uh, by telling you the uh, the points and the number of games played. This may change if you're listening to this podcast after the weekend. A couple of these teams are playing at the weekend, I believe. Uh, Fulham, 26 points, 29 games played. Newcastle, 28 points, 28 games played. Brighton, 29 points, 28 games played. So Fulham, I guess, are in the worst position at the moment, also with a game more played than the two teams that they are chasing and a point or two uh, fewer. So they have the most ground to make up, uh, and we begin with uh, Fulham by saying that their fixtures are as follows. Uh, Home games versus Leeds, Wolves, Burnley, and Newcastle on the last day of the season, which could be absolutely fucking massive. I'm very excited about that. Also fans Uh, potentially in, in that game. Also fans potentially, which would be great. Uh, Away games, here's where it gets a little tougher. Uh, I think I've made a mistake here by saying that they're away to Fulham. (laughs) Possibly you've made a mistake. (laughs) I think that might be a mistake. Unless, you know, something weird's happened. Away games, and this is where it gets a little bit harder. Uh, Villa, Arsenal, Southampton, Chelsea, Manchester United. Seb, I know that you are hopeful uh, for Fulham, or at least you're expectant. You believe uh, that they will have an opportunity to stay up. Uh, One game fewer left to play than the two teams that they are chasing. Two and three points respectively less. Uh, Those are some really difficult away fixtures, and there's five of them before the end of the season. Yeah, but I, I don't see any of the teams in that area picking up lots and lots of points. So I think... As long as you remain, if you're Fulham, as long as you remain within touching distance of Newcastle, which is very possible because Newcastle can't win football games at the moment, then you're going to go into that game on the last game of the season. And you would, at the moment, unless something very dramatic changes at Newcastle, you would certainly fancy Fulham. And like we said in our last pod, you would always put your money on the happier group of players. And with Steve Bruce investigates going on at Newcastle and Matt Ritchie (laughs) doing whatever, you know, it's Fulham, isn't it? And yes, I, I want them to survive because I um, I admire Scott Parker's work, and also I'd like to see what he'd be able to do with a with a second season in the Premier League, with a, a summer of spending and with a bit of squad refinement. I think that'd be very, very interesting. Newcastle, I don't care about because I Newcastle will be exactly the same next season uh, as they have been for pretty much a decade. It will just be the same old struggle, and the kind of we'll get to this point of the year and oh, Ashley hasn't spent any money again, and now what are we going to do? Should we get rid of Steve Bruce and bring in, you know, um, Mike Walker? I, I, You know, I, I don't know. So I'm not really that interested in Newcastle as a spectacle. I have endless sympathy for what's happening at the club and the town and the region and the way the supporters have been um, treated. But do I want to go through another chapter of this story? No, because I've read it so many times before. Well, let's do Newcastle then, since we're talking about them. Yeah. Uh, Ten games left to play. Home games include Spurs, West Ham, Arsenal, Man City, (laughs) Sheffield United. That's hard. Away games, Brighton, Burnley, Liverpool, Leicester, and of course, away to Fulham on the last day of the season. Also really tough games. That's a a horrible set of fixtures 
for Newcastle, particularly when the the home games with I mean, obviously they're not going to beat Man City. They probably won't beat Arsenal, but but Spurs and West Ham as well will frustrate them, be incredibly hard to break down and then pick them off on the break, which really doesn't suit Newcastle's style of play. And then they they're away at two of their relegation rivals. Um, and, and I Liverpool think Liverpool and Leicester. Yeah, uh, and and again, you know, Brighton. I know we'll come on to talk about Brighton, but Brighton and Fulham both look like teams with a coherent plan that have, you know, Brighton got a good result away against Southampton. I know we're a bit on the slide at the moment, but that was a very competent performance and a a merited victory. Um, And they are the sides that look to have a greater degree of momentum. And if Newcastle, you know, don't take points off at least one of them, um, it does start to look very, very difficult, especially given that Newcastle will then have a bit of a tailspin because the pressure gets heaped further and further on. If you're not beating your relegation rivals, then everything else seems that much harder. Um, and as Seb says, the morale in that camp has got to be as low as it always consistently seems to be. So, um, yeah, it doesn't look good for them. Well, Brighton also, uh, 29 points, nine games left to play. Newcastle, Everton, Leeds and Man City at home and away, Man United, Chelsea, Sheffield United, Wolves and Arsenal, which is also not an easy set of fixtures. I think I'm thinking particularly, you know, Everton, I mean, Leeds are a difficult, um, <laughs> it's difficult to know what's going to happen in any game against Leeds. Uh, but the Newcastle tie at home obviously is going to be complicated. Everton have had a fantastic season. Manchester City are obviously blowing absolutely everybody away and don't appear to want to slow down. Uh, Manchester United away is probably better than Manchester United at home because they're shit at Old Trafford, so maybe you'll get a result there. Uh, Chelsea, Sheffield United, Wolves, Arsenal. These are all difficult games in which to score, and I'm aware that Brighton's issue across uh, the season has at times been scoring. Yeah, although there are signs that that's starting to change. I thought they were oddly clinical at St Mary's over the weekend and in many ways that they're, they're kind of a more evolved version of Fulham like given a couple of years and with a bit of investment in certain areas of the pitch you can imagine Fulham looking a little bit more like Brighton um, but Brighton just a little bit further down the, the track and I know you I know we, we talk about those difficult games and, and top four sides I think a hidden factor in the end of this season is going to be that that top four before much longer is going to be ironclad. I don't, I don't see it being very competitive. Maybe there'll be a bit of a rock over the final fourth place, but generally speaking, I think the teams, the teams involved who are still uh, occupied by European competition are going to start looking elsewhere. So if you think about Man United, we're recording this on the Thursday before United go to Milan. So we don't know if they've gone through yet, but if they do, then chances are they're going to have a top four place. Um, sewn up before much longer and are going to kind of be dedicating more resources towards continental competitions and i don't know on that day brighton 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 don't have an inability to compete and they aren't unable to cut teams open they just they haven't been able to cut teams open and make that count for anything but if that is starting to change and i know like playing at old trafford or Stamford bridge is a little bit different to st mary's but if there is an improvement, you could see them picking up points where perhaps Newcastle wouldn't or Fulham wouldn't. Yeah, absolutely. and that's why, yeah, and that's why 
Like, I, I know the league table says that we must be concerned for them, but it's why I've never really been that worried for them. Maybe it's based on the assumption that things are going to change and that, you know, um, chances are going to be converted. And that's maybe a little bit naive, but that seems to that seems to be stacking up. They seem they seem to be progressing forward a little bit at the moment. Uh huh. Well, speaking of naive, let's look back at the predictions we made for the uh, this Premier League season, because <laughs> you sound very confident there, right? And that's fantastic. I like your confidence, Seb. I really do, because uh, it helps me enjoy what's about to happen more. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, at the beginning of the season, for those of you who don't know, we all made our uh, we we predicted the full uh, Premier League table and its lineup by the end of the season. Now, of course, we weren't expecting to get a hundred percent. Um, but some of some of us have done better than others. That's all. Some of us have done better than others. And uh, Seb, would you like me to remind you of your order of events? Because you've done pretty well in some areas. You said uh, Manchester City would be top. Uh, currently, you're correct. That's exciting, isn't it? You also were the only person to have Manchester United in your top three. And uh, given that they are uh, second in the league, I think that's a, that's a great success too. You did have Leicester down at eighth, which I think yeah. uh, looks a little unfair for uh, their performances this season, how could you? Uh, you also had Tottenham at fifth, which is, you know, quite funny because they're Optimistic. shit. Optimistic, yeah. Uh, also, Arsenal at sixth, which I understand why you would put them there, but of course they are currently tenth. Looking at other things, Everton have done a lot better than you said they would. Uh, Wolves have done a lot worse than you said they would. Sheffield United, you put tenth, of course, we know the story there. Newcastle, you've given a little too much credit, I believe. Uh, Burnley, you're very on the button. Brighton, Leeds, you haven't given enough credit to. Uh, but of course, uh, there are two here that uh, are a little, <laughs> a little unfortunate. Aston Villa, you had just avoiding relegation in 17th place. Of course, they've surprised many people, including you, uh, by uh, being currently in the top half of the table at the moment, already on 41 points. Uh, and uh, would you like to remind listeners who you had at the uh, bottom, the foot, the 20th position in the table? West Ham. <laughs> you had West Ham United. <laughs> At the very foot of the Premier League table, and they are currently fifth. I think what I like to do is a differential, uh, a numerical differential at the end of the season to see who actually has the best score. And uh, what's really going to delight me, I think also Alex may have had West Ham in the relegation zone too. Uh, there's such a gap between uh, your predicted positions and the reality there that I feel pretty confident about winning. Now, Alex, if you thought you were going to escape, you were wrong. Uh, Manchester City, you had in At first... no point did I think that I would <laughs> escape, that you would pass up the opportunity to do this. Thing is, everyone's got Liverpool in their, in their sort of top three, and uh, that's, a, that's a real surprise. Uh, you had Man City top, fantastic. Chelsea uh, in, in third, which they may well be by the end of the season, who knows. Man United fourth, okay. You, you gave Leicester City the credit they deserved by putting them above Arsenal and Tottenham. And you actually have Tottenham in eighth, bang on. So congratulations. And Everton in seventh, bang on. Uh, that's really good work. Uh, Wolves far too high. Burnley far too high. Saints maybe by the end of the season. Sheffield United, of course, completely wrong. Palace and Leeds and Newcastle and Brighton. And Villa again in 17th. Again, I think, you know, Villa in ninth really surprised some people. So you've done better than Seb so far. Uh, however, you did also put West Ham United, not quite foot of the table, but you put them 19th place. Yeah. So... Uh, would you like to apologise to West Ham? Where did you put West Ham, Joe? Where did I put West Ham? I yeah. put West Ham not being relegated. And I right, where, where did you put them, Joe? Well, I just put them at not being relegated, so just you let put them, them know I was you correct. You put them in 17th uh, and you put Villa in 16th. 
Uh, yes, but I so, said neither of those teams would get relegated. And, neither so, and, and who, who did you have winning, Joe? Uh, Liverpool. Had Liverpool right. winning. Okay. Yeah. And where did you have uh, City, Joe? Uh, third place. Okay. Yeah. No, so it's going and really well for Chelsea you. Chelsea in second. It's going very well. Uh, I had Tottenham in sixth. That's pretty close. Leicester in seventh. Very close. Arsenal in fifth. Very, very, very close. Very kind uh, to Southampton. Uh, very kind Southampton, Leeds, Burnley, very kind, uh, Palace, Newcastle, Villa. Oh, pretty kind, I would say. I'm fairly certain that uh, Alex, let's just agree that Seb is doing worst at the moment. I think uh, we can so agree on that, Joe. The yeah. accredited football journalist yeah, is happy, doing the happy worst to go with that. so far. Um, anyway, uh, the accredited football journalist wants to talk about football, I think. It's, so it says here in the plan, you've... Uh, you've you, Huh. Yeah, this someone's someone's butchered the plan by mistake. Yeah, I think there. Seb's Seb's random uh, <laughs> highlighting has somehow managed to copy loads of Chelsea chat into the Torino Sassuolo plan. I've no idea what that is now, Seb. I think you might need to explain it to me. No, it's perfectly intended. It was. I just wanted to make it completely inaccessible to either of you two, so that I could have a little monologue <laughs> at the end of the pod. Go on, monologue. Okay, so. Sneaky good game in the middle of a weekday afternoon, uh, Torino Sassuolo. Interesting to us because it involved a theme that we've been talking about a lot, which is um, Tottenham's negativity under Jose Mourinho. And in this game, Sassuolo went 2-0 up, um, two really nice variety goals. And then from that point, I don't really know what, because they sort of, they were, Torino started chucking on forwards and started playing far more aggressively. And... As the second half wore on, obviously Sassuolo got their, their counter-attacking chances as a result. And every time they got one, every time they found themselves in a sort of a, a two-on-two or a three-on-three, they would back off from taking the chance and just consolidate possession and then settle back into a, their defensive shape, bounce the ball between their centre halves a little bit, and then surrender possession. And as time wore on, the pressure grew, the pressure grew, the momentum grew against them so much that I think by the end of the game, Torino had probably four forwards on. Uh, one of them was Simone Zaza, ex-West Ham legend. And he completed a comeback in stoppage time and Torino won 3-2, which is just really interesting because I think, go and find the highlights if you haven't seen them. But also, it's it's weird that football teams can put themselves in a situation where they kind of invite a self-fulfilling prophecy. So you play really well, you play really smartly to get yourself to a two-goal advantage away from home. And then to consolidate that position, you abandon everything that's taken you to that. It's just a really weird, it's almost like a mental tick. And it's it's a, everybody who was watching could see it coming a mile away. Even I was listening to it on um, The Zone while I was, I was doing my work and I was kind of glancing at it, but I could hear the commentary. And the commentator kept saying things like, well, there's only four minutes left, but you 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 bet on Torino getting a draw from here. And it was like, well, I don't know, mate. They haven't hit the target for about half an hour. And it just felt inevitable. It was such a, it was such a self-sabotage that it, it kind of stayed with me. It was great fun to watch. And, and to to um, some of the goals were, were really nice, especially the uh, the plunging header at the death. But it's just a very strange way to to approach a winning position. Yeah, it's just odd. Monologue over. Okay, well, can we restart the monologue but make it about Mikel Antonio choosing Jamaica, please? Yeah, we can do. Uh, and you made me close the Google Docs 
which has all of this information on it. So I'm what a shame. I can tell you memory. that the president uh, of the country's FA, Michael Ricketts, has plans to recruit all sorts of other players, including Mason Holgate, Isaac Hayden, Nathan Redmond, Kamar Roof, uh, Ivan Tony, uh, Andre Gray, and uh, Max Ahrens, of course, as well. Yeah, so... He was by approached the way, by the Jamaican FA last month, Mikel Antonio. He was born in England, but his parents were born in Jamaica. Yeah, the, the Michael Ricketts mentioned is not the ex-Bolton forward who had a solitary England cap. It's a different Michael right. Ricketts. But um, okay. Jamaica has been on the hunt for um, English-based players with Jamaican heritage who might be interested in representing the country internationally. And Antonio is... is the names on that list don't wholly surprise me. Uh, if they want to play international football, then that seems like a, a you know a really good move. And um, you know, if if a player feels an attachment to a nation, then fantastic. Um, you know, if they were born there, obviously, or if their parents were born there, that's you know, it's not an uncommon situation. Or Antonio, TBF if they just want to play international football, that's cool too. <laughs> I don't think they have to feel well, an attachment to the nation. Yeah, yes and no, because yes, you may want to play international football, but if you want to play international football for Jamaica, that means a lot of traveling, um, a lot of jet lag, a lot of pressure put on your domestic form, probably. And so you you almost certainly will have some kind of attachment. It's got to be an emotional draw as well as just a, oh, I want to play international football. Um, I, I accept that that does happen in certain situations, but probably not in this one. Antonio, Antonio is a standout in that list because... Well, he's probably the best player amongst that group, but also because it just feels as if it's a it's a classic England situation. I think for a long time he 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 did want to play for England and he was actually called up for a squad without getting a cap. And you just think it's one of those situations where it's like an odd fitting player because Michel Antonio, as we've talked about before, isn't a isn't a kind of a regular shaped player. He doesn't belong in a specific position. He is not a typical centre forward, winger, fullback, whatever. He, he is belongs just a, in a major tournament, though. He does. I honestly because, feel like he could, yeah. he could be like the golden boot winner at the Euros if England took him. Do you know what I mean? If, if well, it I, worked out in one one way. Why, you, Joe? I think it's even simpler than that. If you were if you were a centre back, would you want to play against Antonio? He'd be a no. nightmare. Like he does yeah. everything well. Um, he's unorthodox, meaning he's unpredictable, and he changes games. Okay, he's not the smoothest player and he's not um you know he doesn't he's not blessed with kind of velvet skill or anything like that but he's incredibly effective and a lot of what he does he does to a really high standard and you just think this is England thinking yeah don't really know what to do with him and he doesn't really fit in our formation so he doesn't pique our interest and I I just find that quite sad I think and it just feels a little bit typical well yeah because in the same way that I'm sure there's somebody out there, you know, speculating about, oh, why don't we take why don't we take Andy Carroll to the European Championship because he does something <laughs> different. Like, yeah, what the it's fuck? It's having the man? same fucking argument again and again, and yet, yeah. unless it's that that only ever applies to really tall players who are good in the air. So for Andy Carroll, see Peter Crouch, like Peter Crouch, a better player than than Andy Carroll. But it's it's the same principle, and with um with Antonio, I don't know. There's just it just seems like a lack of effort to see where the value might be in him for England and it's frustrating yeah if I was the manager I would uh, I would take him with me to the Euros I don't know who I'd take him in place of but I'd definitely take him I think he just offers something that's completely different to all of those other all of the other strikers anyway uh, there's also the Liga Communique yeah this is this is a story which has been developing in France um, and it began with individual clubs saying that 
they wouldn't release players who were due to play international fixtures outside of Europe during the the March international break that we're just coming up to. Yeah, and get them. Well, by the end of yesterday, <laughs> it had become it had become league wide. So it's a, it's yeah. a central directive, which is I don't really know what's going to happen from here, but it, it's interesting because I can completely understand it, but then. That there are World Cup qualifiers to be played as well. It's not just friendlies for every team. So yeah. I don't know. I don't know how you respond to that if you're FIFA or if you're one of the kind of the regional governing bodies. I'm Hard not sure say, what happens. It? I think you can punish a club or a, a, a number of clubs for failing to release players. I don't think you can compel them to release them. I don't think the mechanism exists to do that. It's just a kind of a, an agreement that you know that, that right. clubs and nations cooperate. So I don't. I don't. I don't know the procedure. But it's interesting. It's something to watch out for. Yeah, well, maybe we can bring some updates of that in the coming weeks. Um, anyway, before we finish, it's uh, time for Joe's uh, Player Quotes and Facts database. It's Joe's Quotes and Facts database. Only one addition to the database today, uh, and it's a Chelsea player, Hakim Ziyech. It's, uh, it's also quite a, a sentimental addition. Uh, I didn't realise any of this before when I was uh, uh, looking this morning. I was looking for something funny, as usual, something I could something I could say in a funny way. But this isn't that. This is uh, uh, something from Hakim Ziyech's childhood. Uh, he had eight. Si- well, he has eight siblings. Did you know that? Eight siblings. There's nine of them. The Ziyech children uh, lost his father at ten years old. After which his mother raised the nine children on her own. Fuck me. <laughs> That is well done, like, Mrs. Ziyech. I know, this is, this is the thing. Uh, Ziyech's quote, Hakim, Hakim Ziyech's quote is, if it wasn't for her, I'd have quit football a long time ago. I thought that was just a nice, a nice addition. Uh, a week after uh, Mother's Day that I forgot. <laughs> oh, Whoops. Oh. Anyway, uh, Hakim Ziyech, well done, uh, Mrs. Ziyech, if that indeed is your name. Uh, and uh, you know a, de- a belated, a delayed Mother's Mother's Day special, Joe's player quotes and facts list. Of course, my mother didn't raise nine children, so I don't know what the fuck she's complaining about. But um, you know, <laughs> Just, we're all so so sorry, Mrs. Devine. <laughs> she does listen to the podcast. <laughs> So sorry. Yeah, yeah. But there you go, Mrs. Ziesch. Well done to Mrs. or Ms. Ziesch, and and indeed to Hakim Ziesch, uh, who you know is a successful footballer now, and I'm sure takes care of the famo. Right, uh, that is the end of uh, today's podcast. I won't be here next week because I am on holiday. What am I doing? Uh, nothing. Just going to sit at the same desk and probably use the same computer to do slightly different things. Maybe I'll play some Rocket League. Very exciting. Uh, but uh, for now, Alex Stewart, thank you. Thank you, Joe. Herr Steb Seppablor, Dankeschön. Dankeschön. Thank you, Joe. And uh, we will, uh, Alex and Seb will be back uh, twice next week on Tuesday and Friday with some, I'm sure, sure very exciting morsels of. Uh... We, we do oh, have yes, a good go on. one. Oh, yes, Trail Real pr- privilege to have Ian Hume on to talk about his head injury from back in 2008. Learned so much from talking to him and he was um, very generous with, with his time. So um, I think we're going to run that next Friday, so a week today. 
Yeah. Okay. Well, that's very exciting. Uh, and I uh, hope everybody enjoys the international break that's going to happen next weekend. We'll talk about that when when I'm back. Anyway, uh, for now, thanks to uh, producer Adonis, as always, and uh, au revoir, listeners. Tipos! The Athletic.